Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, September 10th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 36. Wisdom calls out to all humanity, but how does wisdom relate to God? How does God make use of wisdom? As wisdom continues to speak here in Proverbs chapter 8, we see wisdom's role in creation, and we encounter one of those places in the book of Proverbs that point us pretty clearly to the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Phil Boo. Pastor Boo serves at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you, Pastor Apple. I really appreciate it. It's awesome to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Boo, give us some some context in the book of Proverbs. It's a little bit different asking that question in a book like Proverbs, where it, this wisdom literature that we've got, but there is quite a bit of continuity between yesterday's text and today's, as well as, generally speaking, this section of Proverbs. What do we need to know about the book as a whole, this section that will help us into our text for today? Right, sure. So as you guys talked about yesterday, we have wisdom uh, being personified, personification of wisdom. And it, why is that happening? Well, there's a couple different ways to look at it. One way to look at it is that the concept of wisdom, God's wisdom, being wise, is uh, given human attributes so that it can be talked about poetically. Um, but as you alluded to, is that really all there is to it? Um, we know that writers personify things when they want their audiences to relate to it. I think of like you know, cartoons and, and movies like the, the movie Cars only makes sense, for instance, when the cars have the characteristics of people. Um, kids connect to the animals in their storybooks because, well, they those animals walk and they talk and they, they look like them. They can connect to them. And so is that what's happening here, that wisdom's being personified just so that we can kind of have a poetic way to talk about being wise? Or is there another reason to personify wisdom? And as you alluded to, that's because what's happening here is that Solomon is alluding to the pre-incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus before he was Jesus. And the personification helps us connect that not only are we talking about sort of eternal wisdom from God, but also that we're talking about a person that will come in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And um, so as you covered last time, you know, you have wisdom personified as a woman. And Solomon, for a couple chapters, has warned against giving in to adultery. And now he, he talked about wisdom at the, in chapter one, and now he brings back wisdom. And now he's presenting her as a virtuous woman, which is in stark contrast to the adulterous woman and prostitute of chapter seven, and also the woman folly in the next chapter. But now this wisdom, she's, she's on the streets, but this time she's standing in the crossroads in front of the town gate, and she's calling, as you said, everyone to hear her. And what's her message? It's to choose her over the alternative. Oh, simple ones, learn prudence. Oh, fools, learn sense, it says. So Solomon explains that wisdom is a better gift than silver or gold or jewels. In other words... What wisdom offers is better than what the adulterous woman is offering or what the woman folly is offering. Wisdom is offering knowledge and discretion, as it says in verse 12. She's the secret behind wise kings and princes and nobles in verses 15 and 16. And she promises an inheritance to those who love her. I mean, we can just see how many connections there are to Christ. I think about Peter saying to the beggar in Acts 3, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. And then in the name of Jesus, he calls him to walk. And that's what we have here. We have wisdom offering to the world, uh, knowledge unto salvation. And of course, we're going to see that fulfilled in Jesus. 
Yeah, lots of connections to Christ, both in the previous text in Proverbs 8, as well as in our text for today. And there's there's a lot to look at here, Pastor Boo, so I'm going to go ahead and start reading a couple verses into our section. This is Proverbs 8, beginning at verse 22, and again, wisdom is still speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first— before the beginning of the earth. Now I'll I'll pause there because there's there's going to be a lot here. And in the history of the church, these verses have been a bit controversial at times when it comes to as we've been saying, if if this is going to refer to the second person of the Trinity, well then what is this saying about him? And it, it, it doesn't really have to do with anything about that idea that wisdom is personified as a woman and the son of God and, and the whole maybe issues of, of male-female. That's not the issue that's at hand here. Really, the issue that comes up is this idea of the relationship of wisdom to the Lord and, and how that affects what we believe about the son of God. Is he fully God? Is he not fully God? So there's there's a lot of stuff here that in the history of the church, this text has been at the center of some of that conversation. Pastor Boo, that's that's quite an introduction. It was maybe a little <laughs> bit all over the place. Well, help sure. us into some of this. Well, absolutely. First of all, I, I think two things for clarity. And and the first is, just as you said, to kind of get it out of the way, um, the fact that the wisdom is being poetically personified as a woman is not trying to communicate anything to us about the gender of God or the Christ or the Messiah or the Spirit. Um, I mean, we, we hear God speak of himself as like a, a mother hen and as a, as a mother who's given birth and that sort of thing. And those things are attributes of God and uh, really has nothing to do with that sort of stuff. And the second thing, which is pretty simplistic, but it's worth noting, is that when it says the Lord possessed me, the the Lord, Lord, of course, is just a stand-in word for Yahweh. So we have the name of God. And the reason why I say uh, to make that distinction is because as we talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, whom we often refer to as our Lord, it might get a little confusing. So mm. we have Yahweh possessing uh, me, which in this case, like you said, the speaker is wisdom. So possessing wisdom at the beginning. The controversy comes where this had been incorrectly translated as meaning created, as in God or Yahweh created wisdom. And if wisdom is the pre-incarnate Christ or the second person of the Godhead, then then this is to suggest that somehow there was a time when the Son was not. And that's certainly not what is being communicated here. Um this is why the distinction is really important to understand this very, very first verse, to understand that possessed really in the in the Hebrew grammar is suggesting something that something or someone in our case that was with God before creation. Right? So the, the is is this something that God is creating as a part of his creation? Well, no, because we also see that the beginning of his work, that is maybe more woodenly to say, the first of his ways, wisdom is not the first part of creation, but rather the instrument through which God creates, or the one through whom God creates. And so we don't, we don't want to sort of get this understanding that the Son of God or the second person that Godhead was created. The, the testimony of Scripture certainly confirms that that's not the case, and we certainly interpret Scripture along with the rest of Scripture. And, of course, we confess in our creeds, right, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and that's what's being communicated here. And I think it's uh, really certainly interesting that we need to understand that as we go forward, we're going to see wisdom, Christ personified, the pre-incarnate Christ personified, and we're going to see so many connections to his activity in creation that we learn from, say, 1 John, and the activity of creation that we see in this proverb. hope I've been saying proverbs. Sometimes I get it mixed up. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. So, uh, Pastor Boo, I, I think your understanding, your explanation of the word possessed is, is very important. Also, what you said about 
what's translated in the ESV as the beginning of his work, as as more woodenly the first of his ways, I think is a is a key thing that that here this idea that wisdom is the the first way that God acts. It's it's not that wisdom is the first thing God created. That would be the false understanding, but rather that that in wisdom, which is the instrument by which God creates, that is the first way that we see God at work. The first way we see him act. In the beginning God created. And and what is the instrument for that creation there in Genesis 1:1? It is wisdom as we're learning here in Proverbs chapter 8. And that that then, I mean, that understanding of those two phrases then allows us to recognize these words in the same uh, truth, doctrinally speaking, of, say, John 1, as you've brought out already, and, and the rest of Scripture, that the Son of God is truly God, along with the Father, as we confess in the creeds. I suppose, and I think we were talking about this before the show got started this morning, Pastor Boo, that... There's, there's the possibility you could simply say that wisdom is not to be identified with the Son of God and avoid all of this difficulty. Why is it that we should identify wisdom here with the Son of God? Well, you know, first of all, the reason why people don't want to identify wisdom with the Son of God is because of, you know, they're, wanted, they're trying to avoid some of the, the sticky parts. Like, like we said before, you know, what about the fact that it's a uh, personified as a woman. What about the fact that Proverbs, um, if if wisdom is indicative of the pre-incarnate Christ, then everything that Proverbs has to say about wisdom, does all of that fit with something with Christ? And, and many scholars will say, no, there's some places where it talks about wisdom that doesn't necessarily fit. But what we see here is that there are so many connections to Christ's work in creation. Um, we, we know that um, Jesus is from eternity, from of old, right? And we see here that it says that, you know, first of his acts of old, he was already with God at the beginning. And we see that in First John, for instance, like we brought up a couple of times, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made through Him. And so it's consistent with our creed, it's consistent with, uh, frankly, Christian reason that we have um, this going on. Plus, there are other places where God's wisdom is connected to Christ. I think about 1 Corinthians 1. Where, it's, where he's saying, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And then he goes on to say that uh, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then it connects it again a little later. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so when we read it with Jesus as this ultimate manifestation of wisdom, it brings on new meaning and new urgency. I mean, now we can think back to the beginning of this psalm with wisdom standing in the crossroads, calling people to her. And we know that faith in Christ is that which, of course, makes us confident in our future with God, but it also brings us wisdom. You know, that, that is that we're wise unto salvation. And so these are all these. So it becomes just one of these more beautiful, poetic, and very kind of earthly because it's poetic in its description of Christ as God's wisdom. And it's it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And and we can we can avoid the difficulties by simply reading this in context as we're trying to do with the rest of scripture and not make the text say things that it's not intending to say. So, let's keep reading here a little farther then as this this poetry continues this very it's beautiful text here. Uh we're in Proverbs 8 now verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, 
When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. All right, I'll, I'll pause there again. That was Proverbs 8, verses 24 through 31. Pastor Boo, as, as wisdom continues to speak here, again, we get perhaps some of those difficulties again where we're thinking about who the Son of God is. Uh, when there was no, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. In verse 25, before the hills, I was brought forth. This conversation about wisdom saying, I was brought forth, again, may sound like wisdom is a creation of the Father. How do, how do we avoid right. that misunderstanding? Well, first of all, we have to definitely give credit to the Holy Spirit and Solomon in being able to communicate um, all the creation account in eight verses. <laughs> and, and, right. then, and then and in a poetic way. But then we have this language, as you said, that it, it juxtaposes wisdom's birth or it, it's being brought forth with the creation of the world. And so this language, it, it makes it seem like, well, there must have been a time when the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, didn't exist. But instead, this is, this is consistent with the scriptural testimony that Christ is of the Father. It's talking about the relationship of Christ, of wisdom, to the Father. We know that Jesus, the man, God, was born in time to Mary, but as the second person of the Godhead, he existed prior to this from eternity, but in a sense he was being born, he was born before time. It's a, it's a way to say that he's always existed. And we see this elsewhere in scriptures. I mean, Colossians 1:15, for instance, uh, and 16 and 17, it says, uh, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But we see how he talks about it. he is the image of the invisible God. This is Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we, again, we know that Jesus was born, but this language of firstborn of all creation, we see how it kind of connects. So there's sort of a, could very well be a very uh, double entendre going on here where we're talking about the birth of the Christ, because when you personify things, you make it make sense to people. And Christ will be born, but of course, he's born, but then also from, from, from forever, from, from eternity. And, and also notice that the birth or the origin isn't during creation. We know that God created all things that exist in the hexameron, the six days of creation. But he says right here, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, so to speak. So before the, the the waters covered the surface of the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. Before then, he was brought forth. So this is a poetic way of saying that, uh, establishing this uh, God even as being from eternity. Yeah, so the the language, well, as, as you said at the beginning, give great credit to Solomon and, of course, writing in the power of the Holy Spirit for, for writing such a, a wonderful description of creation in just these short eight verses. And, and maybe we can come back to that a little bit and just marvel at the the poetry of this for a moment. But also give, give Solomon credit, again, writing in the power of the Holy Spirit with the great care that he takes in his language so that he doesn't make any of these errors that we've been talking about. And so a, a couple of things. One has to do with, you know, this idea of, of Christ's relationship to the Father or the Son's relationship to the Father. One of the ways that I think we usually speak in the church to, to be very careful is instead of the word being born of the Father, we talk about him, his being begotten of the Father. And, and I think particularly, as, as you were talking about, of the way that it comes to us in the explanation to the second article that Luther writes, where we say, I believe 
that Jesus Christ, true God, and the way that he modifies that is begotten of the Father from eternity. So that this relationship that the Son has to the Father from all eternity is one of begottenness. That That's the relationship. And that's what Solomon is describing here. And then to connect that with, with the way you started, that the primary thing that's going on here in Proverbs 8 is the contrast between the relationship of, of wisdom and creation. So which came first? Was it wisdom or creation? Well, it was it was wisdom came first. And the reason wisdom came first is because wisdom was the agent of creation. It was through wisdom that the Father created everything. And and with that then, and, and you you alluded to this, this is where I, w- I would bring in John 1, verse 3. When we, we talk about the, the places in Scripture where we see very clearly that the Son of God is, in fact, fully God. He's of the same substance as the Father, as the Nicene Creed puts it. I think a lot of times we default to John 1, verse 1, and that's not wrong, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But I think one of the strongest places we can also look to is just a couple verses later in John 1, verse 3, which you have in your notes. And where did it go? I was going to read it. John 1, verse 3. There we go. All things were made through him, that is through the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. So here's here's the reason I think that verse is so important, is that in John 1, verse 3, you, there's two categories. There's either what was created or there's what's not created. And if the word is responsible for creating all things, then he can't be a part of that category. He's got to be a part of the other category, the not created part, which is God, and that includes the word. All of that is to say, and and hopefully I connected those dots, Pastor Boo, you can tell me if if I didn't, or if if you got a clearer way of saying that. All of that is to say that in Proverbs 8, all of this fits, that, that here we've got wisdom as the agent of creation, who is, in fact, the Son of God, who is God. I'll let you take it from there. Well, one way that I always describe it, and I'm pretty sure I stole this from probably Joel Bierman, but is that when you talk about God um, and creation, uh, and I usually do this literally, I'll, I'll put a big box on the board. I don't know if you encountered this particular lecture, but I've definitely taken off with it in my own teaching. So you draw a big box on the board, and you explain that everything in creation is inside the box. And so you get people to just, whether they're kids or adults, you get them to tell you things that you think are outside the box and, you know, or inside the box. And so, you know, after you get through the animals and plants and people and minerals, then you get to, okay, what about God? Well, God's outside the box. Okay, what about angels? Nope, they're inside the box, creation. Well, what about demons? Inside the box, they're angels. What about um, you know, our knowledge inside the box. What about time and space inside the box? The only thing outside the box is God. And so if we think of God's wisdom being something that's outside the box, then it's guaranteed to be outside of creation. Mm. And the distinction is important because everything we understand has to be within the box, meaning we can't fully really understand God except as he reveals himself to us and his revelation is inside the box. So when 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 we see Solomon here writing poetry, which is inside the box, he has to use words and language and intelligence that's all within our own understanding. So when kids say something like, "Well, what? W- w- when did God? When was God created? When when was God born?" You know, you tell them, "Well, he's always existed from eternity." That doesn't really mean anything to a kid, and it doesn't mean as much as we think it means to even us adults. We can't get our minds around that because it's outside the box. So when, when, when the Holy Scriptures have to condescend to us to use language that's inside the box, it's always going to be, even though it's from God, going to be imperfect in the sense that it's having to relate to us in a way that we can understand. Like, for instance, personifying wisdom as a woman, or personifying something as complicated as the second person of the Godhead of the Trinity as uh, this pre-incarnate Christ image coming to us in a poem. And so, yes, so we, we, we make these connections, but we also are humbled by the fact that 
will never fully understand what's going on mm, or until, right. I mean, until heaven. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and you're exactly right. When it comes to the eternity of God, particularly that, that question of God's beginning, that he has none. I mean, that, that blows everybody's mind, child, adult alike. And, and if, if it doesn't, then I don't think you're being honest. I mean, right. that when it, when it comes to my reflections on, on eternity and what that means, it, it's one thing to think about not having an ending. That's, that's hard enough. But to think about not having a beginning is is mm-hmm. just impossible to, to even imagine. And and yet that is the that's the good news that's being proclaimed here in Proverbs chapter eight concerning concerning wisdom, concerning the Son of God, that, that he was there with God in the beginning, creating as the agent of creation. And that that's actually good news for you and for me. And I think maybe we can we can spend a little time reflecting on that on the other side of the break, Pastor Boo. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 10th. We're studying Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 36. We've got Pastor Phil Boo with us. He serves at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, prior to the break, we, we've looked at length at, at these first couple of verses and parsing out the ways that we want to make sure we understand this so that we don't say that the Son of God is created, so that we don't say, as, as it was classically put, that there was a time when the Son of God was not. Why, why do Christians go to such lengths to make sure that we confess that the Son of God is fully God of the same substance with the Father? Why is this such a big deal? Right. Well, first and foremost, the simplest way to put it is to, if we confess that there was a time when Jesus, uh, or sorry, when the Son of God didn't exist, then we would be falling into the heresy of Arianism, which has already been settled by the church. That's kind of the quick and dirty, right? These are things which you are obligated to believe. But to be a little bit more fair to to uh, Arius, it was, well, when I look at the scriptures, my mind wants to look at certain parts and say, well, it seems to me that there was a time when God was different than he is now. Except the the scriptures confess more clearly than any parts that might confuse you in that direction that God is eternal, unchanging, he's unwavering, he in a good way, um, and and that Christ is the fulfillment of God's wisdom in time, um, with the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, um, who's come down to us in in our human flesh and saved us from our sins through his life, death, and resurrection. So what we have is a couple things. One, men have strived to be able to understand God, and as I said before, God's really outside the box. So what good is a God that you can completely get under your own intellectual control? Well, it's certainly not going to be God completely, at least as he is. Now, on the other hand, if if God were 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 changing or mutable, then we couldn't rely on His promises, and we couldn't rely on um, the reality that that God is something that is above the fray, outside of our 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 human influence. Um, he certainly hears our prayers and all those sorts of things. I don't want to get into that, but you get what I'm saying is that we have we have a God who is the only constant thing in the universe, uh, or even outside the universe, because the universe is in the box. And we have Jesus, who is a condescension of God to us, not because God had to, but because we needed it. And so it's so important that we don't dismiss Christ as merely 
one part of the creation or as only partly God, we have to understand because the scriptures tell us, but also because it just makes sense that the sacrifice of Christ would not have been effective for the entire world, lest he was also 100% God, which he was. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's where the theology all comes together. If we, if we miss this part, then we're going to miss it in that very key place, which is justification by grace through faith, to use that, that very theological term, the article on which the Church stands and falls. If we miss this, then that becomes affected, and when we lose that, we lose our salvation. And so it is it is important for us to confess this truth with Proverbs 8 and with the rest of Holy Scripture. So, Pastor Boo, about, back more to the text specifically, I mentioned, and well, you mentioned, that, that this is just a very, it's a very beautiful section of text, and we don't want to miss that. So as, as the as the wisdom continues to speak, you know, before the mountains had been shaped, before he made the earth, and, and Solomon gives us this beautiful recounting of creation in just a few verses. Take us into some of the beauty of the poetry, as well as the theology, what wisdom is saying here. Right. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Creation has always been communicated to us in poetic terms. Um, and I think this is because poetry is something that is um, affective, not just informative. It, it affects the hearer. It changes the way you feel and think. Um, and so when we hear about creation, the, the accounts of creation aren't even necessary, although they are true and everything they do communicate, they aren't to communicate every single thing we may ever wanted to know. But what they communicate is that God, this constant of the universe, loved us so much that he created all that exists, and he put humans as the crown of that creation. And so when we see Solomon communicating this, he uses poetry for lots of reasons, but if nothing else, it's the language in which creation can be communicated. And so he established the heavens, you know, and not everything's exactly in the same order. I know some some scholars take some exceptions to that. Well, wait a minute. He mentioned, you know, the fountains of the deep coming up, but that didn't happen to, you know, that I think that's being nitpicky to a text that's supposed to be affective in nature. What is it? And what is it? What is it supposed to do to the hearers? And it is to communicate both awe in the majesty and power that God possesses. And in this particular text, when it comes to the relationship between wisdom and creation, what's it say in verse 30? That wisdom was beside him like a master workman. Now, by the way, there's your male referent if you really need one. Like a master workman. And what do we know? Again, as we mentioned from 1 John and from uh, I'm sorry, from John 1, pardon me, and and even Hebrews 1, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Through God, through Jesus, rather, through the second person of the Godhead, the pre-incarnate Jesus, God created all that exists. And so here we have wisdom saying, I was beside him like a master workman. And I also love, and I was his, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Why is that important? God loves you. God loves his creation. I mean, we reflect a lot on how, you know, uh, creation has, has, has strayed from God's plan, and that's true. But why did God create all of these beautiful things? Because he loves us. And um, wisdom, too, was God's delight. I, so a couple of thoughts there. You know, in, in terms of the—I I really appreciate the way you, you talked about poetry and the way that Scripture speaks of creation in these poetical ways. And, and to the point that some might, you know, quibble, well, he doesn't describe it here in order— you know, he doesn't describe everything in creation either, mm-hmm. and and it, and it seems just through a through a read through of the things that he does mention, the mountains, the hills, the fields, the heavens, the skies above, the sea, the foundations, all of these things are the 
the things in creation that would seem the most permanent, the most immovable, the most timeless. When I look at the world around me and I think what's been here the longest, these are the things that I'm going to be thinking of. The point is wisdom was before all of that. Wisdom was the master workman through all through the, through the creation of it all. And so, I mean, yeah, we, we don't want to sort of, we don't want to get literalistic is the way that I often describe it when it comes to that and, and hold Solomon to rules that he's simply not playing by. So, I mean, I, I greatly appreciate that. And then, you know, just the, the, in verse 31, this matter of the joy and the delight in it all, in, in all of the technical details, sometimes I think that might get lost. But to see Solomon put it here in, in on the lips of wisdom, that that wisdom was rejoicing in this world and delighting particularly in the children of man. What what good news that simple statement is that Jesus loves me. God God loves you. And that and that is a message that our, our world needs today. It's a message that I need each and every day to know that God loves me. Because when I look at things like the heavens and the skies and the seas and the foundations of the earth. I mean, think of the the hurricane that recently hit the Gulf Coast, not too far away from from where I live. We're we're okay in Smithville, but it's not that far away. How do I know that God loves me when I see those big parts of creation seemingly angry and attacking me? How do I know that God loves me? Well, I know because of because of Jesus. And I mean, and, and he's the one who's talking here. And I think to to see that in this text of of Proverbs, it's just a it's a delightful thing. It really is. Right. And I love where in verse 30, you know, it says too, I was his daily or daily his delight. And and so wisdom is also the delight of God. And yeah. if we're connecting that to Christ, then we see that that the second person of the Godhead who would then come to us incarnate in Christ is the delight of God. I mean, and how often have we heard this preached from our pulpits and proclaimed in our liturgies uh, and lectionaries? And we see in Matthew 3 and 17, for instance, where, where he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And of course, the son, the son delights in the creation, not only because he's of one will of his father, but, you know, he also is um, the one who uh, who experienced all the things that it is to be human, not because he had to, but because he loves us and because he knew that it would be his uh, a selfless sacrifice that would save us from our sins. I think of Hebrews 12, where Jesus is described as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, right? Ignored that and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. And then our one God looks upon us with love. And then of course there's, who can think of anything better than John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that great passage of God's love for us and think, I mean, even this idea of, of rejoicing in his inhabitant world, delighting in the children of man, I'm reminded of in, in, Genesis 3. I'm not sure if it comes up in Genesis chapter 2, but in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, Moses tells us there that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that this was his habit, that God walked in the garden. And and we do know the theme from Genesis 1 and 2, that the garden was a place for God to dwell with his people. And, And of course, that is a huge theme in the scriptures. We see it in the tabernacle, we see it in the temple, that God delights to dwell with his people. And and even when they are sinners, and he knows that his holiness would would kill them. What does the Lord do? He he works through means so that his presence among them doesn't kill them. All of this comes to to its fruition in Jesus, who is God dwelling among us. There's more John one language, and it comes to final fulfillment in the book of Revelation, where where we actually dwell with God eternally. Think of the descriptions in the book of Revelation. More poetry there, putting into our language things that that cannot be described. But, but the key to it, what, what makes that eternal life is that that is where we dwell with God. 
and, and we dwell there with God because he loves us, because he delights to dwell with us. He, he delights in this inhabitant world and in the children of man. It's, it's just, a, I mean, it's, again, it's a beautiful text poetically, but, the, but what's actually being communicated is just as beautiful, if not more so. Oh, absolutely. And we look forward to that new heavens and new earth in which we dwell with God, right? So why did God descend to us? in Jesus Christ. I mean, he certainly didn't have to. Um, In fact, the Old Testament testimony makes it clear that God didn't have to, but rather out of his abundance of grace and love for his creation. And I think that is what we can look at when the storms of life, whether they be figurative or literal, hit our shores. We know that God's delight is in those who love him. So wisdom now has has finished this part of of its speech, and now is going to come back to this matter of, of listening, the idea of calling out and and sort of put it back upon those who are hearing, as to its its great importance. So the the text concludes here in chapter eight. This is now verses thirty two through thirty six. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. That's the conclusion of Proverbs chapter 8, that was verses 32 through 36. So, Pastor Boo, it, it actually only just struck me right now, as I was reading verse 32, the way that it starts, and now, O oh sons, listen to me. We've heard Solomon throughout this first part of the book of Proverbs speak to his son. He, he said, my son, my son. And now wisdom is addressing those who, who would hear and believe as sons. I don't, I don't think that's an accident. No. Uh, take, take us into these first couple of verses of 32, 33. No, absolutely right. I mean, now we're... There is a distinction between the sons of disobedience and the sons of our Heavenly Father. And when we hear, and now, O sons, listen to me. This is the message. God wants all people to be uh, inheritors, to be sons of him and daughters, of course. We see that. And so he says, blessed or blessed are those who keep my ways. To me, it just it recalls Luke 11. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, or naturally any of the Beatitudes of Jesus. But regardless, we see hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed or blessed is the one who listens to me. And so what's the church's role today, right? It's to have this same message, to stand in the crossroads where wisdom stood to call people to come to wisdom, to Christ, you know? And, and I, I, I referenced, I looked up, but it connected in such a great way. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10, it says through, uh, that through the church, Paul writes, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. And he says that according to the eternal promise that he has realized in Christ Jesus, we see here Christ being connected to eternity, Christ being connected to wisdom, the church's role to continue this message. So the purpose of wisdom in this proverb is that all who hear the call will turn from the wickedness of the world and live. And that's God's call for us in Christ Jesus and the church's call to the world today. If you had to have a verse to to write on your doorpost, maybe it should be 35. For whoever finds me finds life. And of course, obtains favor from Yahweh. But then there's this reality that people will turn against Christ. And so, but he who fails to find me injures himself, right? Because God's love is for all people. And all who hate me love death. Really, if nothing else convinces you that wisdom here is the pre incarnate Christ, I think verses 35 will, for whoever finds me finds life. Wisdom is not only eternal and divine. Wisdom was present at creation. Wisdom was an agent or a workman of creation. But wisdom also makes us wise unto salvation. 
Jesus being the source of our life with God. And I think that's a, a just the absolute beautiful way to end this particular message for Solomon. Yeah, I, there. I mean, there's there's a, so so much here. I I appreciate the connection you make to the Beatitudes. I mean, those those in terms of their form, verse what, thirty-two and verse thirty-four are Beatitudes. The word, right. I mean, a Beatitude is anything that starts with a blessed. But I think the connection to Luke eleven is a good one, and then Jesus Beatitudes, particularly from Matthew five. Those have come up a couple other times in our studies of Proverbs so far that, you know, think of who Jesus calls blessed in his Beatitudes. It's not the people we would expect. And and similarly, the people whom Solomon would call blessed or the those who, whom wisdom would call blessed, well, I mean, at the very beginning of the chapter, wisdom was calling out to the simple and to fools, mm-hmm. to those who, who don't have this wisdom those are the ones called to listen. And when those simple ones, those foolish ones do listen, they are in fact blessed, which is, I mean, that's, that's that beautiful reversal that you see in Jesus Beatitudes. And so, I mean, I think th- those are, those are great, great connections to bring up. The, and, and then too, to see the church's role in this. And, and I would say it, it, it's twofold. The, the, first, the church stands as sons of God who are listening to wisdom. I mean, that's the only way that, that we have to start there. We have to be those who are listening to the wisdom. But then this wisdom starts to come out of our own lips. This was uh, yesterday, Pastor Finnern kept bringing up the, the phrase from the liturgy, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And, and I think that's, I mean, that's the role of the church that you're talking about, Pastor Boo, is that, that after we have heard the wisdom that the Lord has for us in his word, and we've let that wisdom have its way with us, that God's word comes to us and, and it transforms us, it gives us saving faith, then our lips are open so that, that we do stand at the corners, wherever, wherever that may be in, in Connecticut or Texas, that we would stand at those corners and proclaim it to all, because that is who, who God desires to, to reach. Now, I, I know, and we'll come back to, this is one of those places where, where you kind of wish, I mean, far be it for me to criticize Solomon, but you kind of wish he had reversed 36 and 35. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you'd rather say this is the word of the Lord after verse 35 <laughs> than 36. But but that's the way he wrote it. But for the sake of our conversation, we got about five minutes here. Sure. Let's let's talk a little bit about verse 36, and then we'll conclude with some some thoughts that'll help us more into verse 35. So, so sure. verse 36, talk about those who do, I mean, what is the warning for those who don't listen to wisdom? What's fascinating about it is that we think of people outside of faith being subject to the wrath of God. And in eternity, unfortunately, that's true. But we also see throughout Scripture, and especially here in verse 36, he who fails to find me injures himself. Now, what we can't do is now imagine God as a petulant child hiding somewhere waiting for us to find him, when instead, throughout his creation, through which we know that there is a God, and throughout his revelation, God has made it extremely easy to find him. It would be like uh, playing hide-and-seek in a completely open field with the person you're trying to find in the middle, waving their arms, I'm right here. Failing to find them then is really just your own stubbornness. And we see that in this text. He who fails to find me injures himself. It's his fault. And all who hate me love death. And Jesus talked about the world hating him and hating us. I think again of John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. He talks about the world hating him. And what did the world do? The world put him to death. But then God, of course, is amazing. Through that death, he gives life. And then Jesus warns us, though, that as we go off and we live as sons of God, sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father, the world will hate us. And we need to be prepared for that. And I think as Christians in America who've really been accustomed to having a preferred position for a very long time, we're starting to just see inklings of that. And we have to continue to prepare ourselves and our children for what the future may hold. But absolutely, there's this there's this indicative, um, or sorry, this indicator of of the fact that people 
who reject Christ are really just hurting themselves. Yeah, we and we've we've seen these warnings throughout the book of Proverbs already. That what you were saying there about that those who hate the Lord and hate his wisdom also end up hating his church and the need to prepare ourselves for that. I, I do think that that all of these things that wisdom is proclaiming here in chapter eight help us with that, that we would recognize the true treasure that is ours in this wisdom that comes from Christ. At those times when the world is, is persecuting us and hurting us, we need to hold on to that and recognize what what truly is valuable. Where the where do the true riches lie? They do not lie with peace with the world and those who hate Christ, but rather they lie with Christ even when that comes through persecution and even death, because we know that Christ has already walked the way through death and into life, and so he will bring us that same way as well. Pastor Boo, with about two minutes here, uh, bring us, you know, again, <laughs> take, us, take us into the good news, oh, right, and, and, and help us draw this together, draw it to Christ. Well, I'm going to start with a bit of law, and that is this. The church has, I believe, definitely taken up this role of wisdom, and here's why I say that. You have this call by Solomon through this text that that the sons of the world should follow after wisdom instead of the instead of folly instead of the adulterous woman the adulterous world and so follow after wisdom and then you sort of fast forward and then you connect that to this idea and of course the genders are reversed but you you have this idea of Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride and then you connect that to the mystery that Paul talks about it and says, well, when husband and wife come together, they're now one flesh. And so now the church serves with the same will of Christ and now takes on that mantle. And of course, Christ is behind it in front of it all, but then tells people, right, says, whoever finds me finds life. And then we're now the ones pointing to where Jesus, he's not hiding. He's right here in this bread and this wine. He's right here in this simple water. He's right here when this poor, miserable sinner preaches from this pulpit, and he's right there in the Bible, and he's right there accessible by your prayers. And that's our job, right? To point people to wisdom, of course, pointing people to Christ so that they may be wise unto salvation. Pastor Phil Boo is the pastor at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut, helping us this morning with Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 36. Pastor Boo, thanks for being our guest again today. Oh, always excited to be on. Thank you very much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.